In a world where heterosexual marriage only seems to lead to unhappiness, a young man comes home from university and finds he no longer fits in with his family. This is This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, Hamlet. take a minute here at the beginning of our first episode to introduce ourselves a little bit and just let everyone know who they'll be hearing from what brought us to this wild project would you like to kick us off surely uh i'm emma rosa went i am a new york-based theater director and let's see what else i make a lot of shakespeare and other classic text plays and also new plays and we um have done some of that together and have a lot of conversations about Shakespeare, which inevitably led us to this pass. <laughs> How about you? The fate of every millennial to someday make a podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I'm Haley Bacharach. I'm a scholar, I guess I have to say. Um, based yeah. at, I know. Um, based at the University of Roehampton in London. And I write and read about Shakespeare and his contemporaries and also how we perform Shakespeare and his pals in the present time. And as you said, <laughs> I've also been a dramaturg um, and worked with you and with some other people on putting on Shakespeare plays. Mm -hmm. So we've got a nice, we've got a nice sort of, you know, practitioner scholar nexus. Mm happening here. And I think that's one of the things we hope we can bring to the very important question of <laughs> is every Shakespeare play a little bit gay? The answer is yes. And we're going to tell you why. <laughs> I was going to say yes. Hangs up the microphone. Podcast over. It is complete, but we are mm -hmm. going to go play by play one every other week and break mm -hmm. down exactly how and why this is so. Um, <laughs> and this week we're starting with one of the big guns the tragedy of hamlet prince mm. of denmark go big or go home <laughs> i think it's a good one it's a good one to start with because i think it's a uh, one yeah. of the plays that has an interesting sort of disjunction between a perhaps shakespeare fan and pop culture sense of its queerness that is very rarely reflected in its actual performance history that's a great point actually just you know that's true because there are so many i've seen like there's a weird internet seam of gay Hamlet like memery that has started happening in the last like several years. And I do feel like that's not necessarily something that you actually see on stage very much. Yeah, it's interesting. I Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that the memery sprang from somewhere and yeah. that is what we're going to illuminate today. Yes. So what we're going to do is we're going to sort of break things down act by act um, so we can recap a little bit as we go, yeah. though that's hopefully less necessary this week than it may be in the future. Yes. Uh, and we'll wrap things up at the end and see where we land in terms of why Hamlet is gay. Here we so, go. <laughs> so let's start things off right in act one. Um, you know, just, I don't, I, 
we've all read Hamlet. It feels weird to be like, there's some, there's a prince yes. in Denmark. So, so his dad's dead and <laughs> yeah. And chaos ensues. Yeah. Um, but I think that the thing about, I mean, one of the like striking things about Hamlet, right. And something that maybe we can talk about at the beginning is the fact that I think Hamlet gets one of the more dramatic hero entrances in Shakespeare because it's very understated. He is not in the first scene of the play. He shows up in the second scene, which is a big group scene and sort of partway through, Mm -hmm. he gets pointed out and actually speaks. Um, But there's definitely (laughs) this very, I remember um, back in, gosh, 2009, I think, when yeah. Jude Law did Hamlet on Broadway and they worked really production. hard. <laughs> it was, and yeah, they worked really hard to sort of conceal him. Yeah. So that they didn't have to have weird entrance applause when he came on, which is easy to do because it's a group yeah. scene, but it is this, you almost feel that that is deliberately what the play is trying mm-hmm. to do, to be like For sure. with, withholding Hamlet yeah. from you. Directors often have a lot of fun by if you put that scene at a long table or in some kind of like, you know, courtly business arrangement, people often have a lot of fun with putting Hamlet's back to the audience. So he's just like this sort of emo kid on the corner where like, you know, at some point when Claudius turns to him, you get to have the actor turn around, which, yeah, it is a really um, it's sort of a sneak attack entrance. Yeah. And I think that the reason I wanted to start with it is because I think one of the themes that really jumped out at me reading through the first act this time through is how early and how often the play is hammering home Hamlet's kind of sense of alienation from Denmark and his family and like we get it visually again in that first scene because the other thing is that he's the only person still wearing black in black right which is awful, often also really funny in like modern productions where everybody's wearing suits yes. and they're like, why are you still wearing black, Hamlet? And it's like, I don't know. Why are all of you wearing business suits? You're all wearing black. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean, yeah, that sense of alienation and also the, um, I always feel like the, especially in modern productions where he's like in a hoodie or something like that, it really like, it really hammers home the like, this is a kid home from college of it all, you know, because it's like, he's in a different key, you know, the black is purposeful, obviously, but also like, he looks like a, he looks like an emo kid. He looks like a child. Like, you know, I mean, there's like something, the I'm home from, you know, on Christmas break from college in my home and I feel weird about it energy is so strong in that scene yeah it reminded me of um a production directed by Simon Godwin for the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2015 14 15 um that Mm. was set in Africa and one of the sort of explicit threads was that Hamlet was back from university in England or somewhere else in the west and that like part of his sense of alienation was that like he had learned about kind of the rest of the world and again sort of problematically because it was directed by a white guy but like you know the clash of like the western values that Hamlet is bringing back to Africa being like part of the conflict in this production Um, and obviously I don't know that it's anything quite that sort of dramatic and explicit but there is certainly as you say this feeling of Hamlet's been away has had experiences has met new people I think 
there's something interesting in thinking about Horatio as the sort of symbol of the life that he has been leading and like the things that he's been learning away at university and now he's back and just wants to leave and doesn't fit it anymore mm-hmm. yeah I have a lot of thoughts about that so one of the um a couple of things that stood out to me rereading it for this was um weirdly the the fact that Laertes in that scene is also um, sort of expresses what Hamlet doesn't say in a way that I had never quite noticed where also was the other young guy in the room. They're like, do you want to stick around? And Laertes is like, actually, I'd like to leave as soon as possible and get back to the life I was leading before this, you know? <laughs> and his dad is like, let him go. And Claudius is like, okay, go. And then Hamlet, who you can tell, you know, like who also has been pulled back for this like traumatic family slash business gathering from the life that he was leading doesn't get to leave. The fact that in the order of the scene, Claudius looks at Laertes and is like, okay, fine, go. And Laertes is like, cool beans, thanks. And then to Hamlet, very explicitly, then we turn and say, you know, within the cheer and comfort of our eye, you know, the thing of like, no, you have to stay here, stay put forever. So it's like the awkward Christmas break that never ends. Also his dad is dead, but you know, I mean, it's interesting. The young people want to leave and Hamlet doesn't get to leave is something that I hadn't ever quite clocked about that scene. Yeah. Um, and I guess like to draw the line more explicitly, because I mean, I think it's like, you know, there's the joke of like, you go away to college, you spend one semester there and then you're like, oh, I'm gay. And then you have to go back <laughs> to, you know, Oregon or whatever. Um, and as it might be, as it may be. Well, I didn't yeah. want to insult a state I wasn't from. That felt, that's fair. You know, I was going to say like Iowa, but I was like, that's not taking it for the team. Yeah, that's not nice. Um, <laughs> so I think that there's like, obviously a modern, like based emotional reality yes. there. Um, but I think there's also something in like the context of his return specifically, like you just said, it's this weird sort of funeral slash business meeting, but it's also explicitly a funeral slash marriage. Right. I was thinking about that line, mirth in funeral and dirge in marriage. And just setting up like from the very beginning that like the two pillars of sort of heterosexual patriarchy, which are marriage and the succession are both mm -hmm. up. Yeah. We were going to try not to swear. So I'm going to bleep that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, that like from the outset, it's like, the people who should be married aren't married. The sons are not the sons of the people who are supposed to be their fathers. Like everything about the kind of orderly heterosexual world order has been sort of jumbled and shaken up. And Hamlet is sort of entering into this family dynamic. And as the kind of relative outsider feels like, why am I the only person who can see how screwed up all of this is? Yes. Yes, that's brilliant. I remembered what I was going to say a second ago, which is that when Claudius finally turns and sort of zeroes in on Hamlet, when Hamlet does the like, spins the chair around, it's me, I'm in this scene, and we finally get to make it about him. Um, the way that Claudius, as the new head of both the patriarchal structure of succession and family, the way that he addresses Hamlet's like outlying, you know, distaste, this grief that everybody feels is carrying on too long, this always really strikes me that at the way that the speech, Claudius's speech to Hamlet, uh, you know, here in one, two, the way that the speech starts with, tis sweet 
I'm commendable in your nature, Hamlet. Like he starts by being like, that's so nice. I know your dad's dead. You care a lot. And then how intensely vehement the, like we're barely like six lines later. And then we get what I think is one of like the cornerstones of this discussion we're having is to persever an obstinate condolement is a course of impious stubbornness tis unmanly grief. It shows a will most incorrect to heaven. So it's like two seconds later, he's like, actually, how you're behaving is not manly and also it's not right with God. Yeah, I think that there's sort of two layers for me to what Hamlet is kind of the way that Claudius is judgmental of Hamlet's feelings. Because yes, there's the classic unmanly grief. Right. And I am going to keep like banging my drum that to call something unmanly in this period is not necessarily to say that it is queer. No, but, no. But um, <laughs> just, I will just giving, just giving the reader a preview that that is one of my like bugbears. Well, do you um, want to, do you want to drill down into that for the listener now? If it's going to, if you think it's going to be something that, that, I mean, I think that people can, should have in their minds. I mean, I think it's about, um, I think it's like a complicated thing in a moment like this because it comes up in a way that makes a lot of sense to us as a modern listener, reader, viewer of, oh, you're too emotional, you're too sad, you're crying too much, and that's girly. And we're like, yes, it is, that sounds right. Um, but it's so much more about um, a lack of temperance and an inability to sort of control one's emotions full stop so like mm -hmm. something like Laertes excessive anger later in the play is equally unmanly right um and so I think it's just about being careful about what we assume that word is implying and mm -hmm. also I think that something Shakespeare does a lot is like be a bit critical of people who are too quick to say that emotion is unmanly Mm -hmm. um not to like jump to a random play but I always think about Macbeth. the scene of Macbeth yes, yes. exactly yeah. when Macduff is like yeah. no it is manly grief yeah like, yeah, yeah. well um, I must also feel it as a man yeah. yeah yeah and so I think that it's something that is that we shouldn't take at face value in the way that it's sometimes tempting to do sure that said I think in this instance you're totally right that it's surrounded by all this stuff about like it's not right in the eyes of God and something else that jumped out at me is the why seems it so particular with thee and your father lost a father, his father, you know, the idea that like, this yes. is normal. Why aren't you, why are you making this weird? Like, why yes. can't you experience this the way that every other man experiences it in yes. a normal way? Yes. Yeah. 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 I think that's, it's just, it's so interesting that they have time for the fact that both Gertrude and Claudius in their kind of respective speeches have time to acknowledge his feelings for like two lines and then immediately are like, we need you to move past this though. <laughs> like, and also like the country, the, the, I mean, in all plays about monarchy, you know, the kind of set in a royal family anyway, the kind of conflation of like the family, but also the country need you to move past this yeah. because it doesn't look right. Right. But, and then I think to like return to the thing I said a minute ago, the way that both of them are like our son, our son. And the idea that he's like, I'm sorry, do we just have to pretend you're not my normal? dad? Yeah, you're not my dad. Like this, I should be, I mean, it's like a subtle thing, but he does yeah. sort of mention once or twice, like I should be king. Yes. And yeah. I think it's easy to forget because it seems like that should be his motivation and it's super not. 
No, well, I mean, God, that's a whole other thing that we'll have to trace all the way through. But yeah, well, it's interesting because I um, I recently did some work on this play with a dramaturg who who highlighted for me somewhere later when Hamlet says, you know, he came between the election and my hopes. The thing of like, it wasn't a foregone conclusion at all, you know, sort of historically or whatever that Claudius, you know, I mean, the idea of like Hamlet could have, you know, like how the implication that the speed with which Claudius sort of took the job while Hamlet was not yet present implies a sort of cutting of the line that I feel like people don't often emphasize. Well, and it's sort of, that's really smart because it also drives home the feeling of like, rather than the succession proceeding forward, Claudius is trying to replace Hamlet's dad. It's like, yes. no, 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 no. It's not time for it to pass to you. It's to me, your right. father. And it's like, you're not him. You're not my dad. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. And like, you know, there's the questions of like, I mean, Hamlet clearly thinks that it is incest to marry your sister-in-law, or at least he says it. He does. He might just be mad. (laughs) Um, And that was a not unprecedented sort of perspective kind of, I mean, (laughs) Henry VIII, you know, like that is a thing, that is a belief that people held was that it's not cool to marry your brother's brother's widow. Yeah. Um, So it's just this whole sort of mess of like, I mean, again, it's like this sort of funhouse mirror of heterosexuality. Like everyone's like, this is a normal marriage and a normal succession. And Hamlet's like, are you, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's something in that like sort of fundamental alienation from the sort of marriage Mm -hmm. and succession kind of setup that everyone else is insisting is fine and normal that feels very gay. (laughs) (laughs) that's true you know and what else is interesting about it too is that in the room of act one scene two where all of these kind of new like the program is being established and hamlet is not with the program one of the most fundamental things about how the play works i think is that when everybody leaves but hamlet I think that whether, you know, whether or not it's true direct address or he's just speaking to himself, the assumption is that the audience immediately is in the pocket of the character who is like, I'm being gaslit. This is crazy. You know, I mean, like Hamlet takes us with him, obviously, notably not the other way around. You know what I mean? Is that we are, we're in the pocket of the gay kid who is like, this is horrible. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like the, his, his, when nobody in the room is um, acknowledging of his perspective that this is all much too crazy until Horatio shows up, I suppose. We'll get to him, but you know, I mean, to, to some degree, the audience is the person that gets it. The fact that this has all moved on much too fast and that we shouldn't be acting like it's normal. Yeah, well, it's sort of like, we're the only ones who give him the chance to explain how he feels. Yes. Because everyone else is like, we don't even get to hear, as you said, like Laertes gets to make the case that he wants to go back to Paris, but Hamlet doesn't get to explain why he wants to go back to Wittenberg. You know, like he's continually sort of cut off and not allowed. I mean, partly because he starts to talk and he just talks in like sassy couplets. So everyone's like, okay, be quiet, Hamlet. Um, (laughs) But it's also like we're turning to the audience is the only time he gets to explain like, this is why I'm so upset. Yeah, yeah. On that note, um, I wanted to ask you about a line that jumped out at me uh, in a different context, because obviously I've read Hamlet a couple times, <laughs> um, and but never like so explicitly trying to, you know, mine all the proof that to, it's gay. To find the gay, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> with, my, with my like sort of gay metal detector out. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> I was really struck by the whole kind of I have that within which passes the show. show. Yeah. Um, which obviously is about like I yes, I'm dressed in mourning, but I'm also sad inside. But there's something about <laughs> like that idea that it's it's mm. something inside of me that yeah. is making me experience things this way. Yeah. And well, it's interesting too, because it's in the context of the reply to Gertrude in that little run of, you know, seems, madam, I know, nay, it is, I know not seems, you know, the thing of like, it's part of his, of his accusation that where everyone else is just put on, you know, his is true all the way through, you know, and if that's, it's interesting in that too, of just sort of like, well, in the yeah. inverse of you're telling me to just like shake it off and I can't because it's inside me. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. I'm not just wearing, you know, a cloak of sorrow like right. all of you, apparently. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a further differentiation of him from everybody else present of sort of like I'm not. Well, and I mean, this is a theme that's going to that I was so aware of reading the play again for this that's going to chase all the way through. And it has to do a lot with women in the play, but also a lot with act acting and actors in the play Hamlet's sort of weird obsession about like I'm not an actor or a liar you know like I can't I don't have the thing on the surface I have the thing inside me but also I feel like Hamlet has such a, a suspicion he has a suspicion of people who are well a suspicion inauthentic in, well yes and the categories of that are are women actors and his and and politicians basically <laughs> you know what I mean like it's interesting because he had you know think of lots of different textual examples the obviously three genders <laughs> tag yourself um but yeah <laughs> um my gender is king of Denmark um <laughs> baby but yeah. yeah 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 no but it is uh, uh, yeah there's something in the sort of like what yeah. is this truth that you mm -hmm. feel you have that both kind of sets you apart from and needs to be displayed but also needs to be concealed like right it's yeah yeah it's so interesting because you know yeah because he has depending on who he's speaking to or reacting to it's like he has envy for the ability to express one's truth and one's like he has he has envy when it's an actual actor which I'm sure we'll get to but when it's other people he seems de it's he's deeply mistrustful of what it means to be you know something I was just thinking of that this seems like perhaps a really obvious point but I've never quite thought of in this way is that because the play is Hamlet and you know all of the famous speeches and all of that like I think we think of Hamlet as a character who is great at expressing himself but actually he's only great at expressing himself to us you and know even then like how great is he on some level like I was really I mean like I'm yes. joking but also the poetry is beautiful but yes. reading it again I was like on some level every soliloquy is him still trying to work out the same problem yes of how yes. do I feel and why is it wrong to feel the way I feel and how can I feel different than the way I do and it's like whatever yes however good he may be at expressing himself like he can't solve the problem through words mm -hmm. in the end mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no he can't at all he can't at all I mean yeah I mean we'll get to it when we hit act five I suppose but yeah no that's such a good that's such an interesting point he can't talk his way out of being gay 
<laughs> no, he can't. Well, and something that he can't talk his way into or out of anything. That's what's so interesting <laughs> about something that I always, I mean, your point about how the soliloquies are all basically the same. I was just, um, something that I, that I always, what, what a hot take. <laughs> They're all the same. Basically. You heard it here, Dr. <laughs> Haley Backrack coming out the gate. If you've heard one Hamlet soliloquy, you've heard them all. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? Listen, no, okay. But the thing I was going to say what's so interesting is that, because I want to talk about um, uh, Two Two Solid Flesh before we leave Act One. And um, in the sense that the speeches are all the same, what's interesting about it is that this is the one we get before he sees the ghost. And this is, to be clear, the soliloquy that he gives at the end of this this group scene. Yes. When everyone else has left and he sort of takes a moment to both have some suicidal ideation and also explain to the audience what's going on. Yes. It's a real deft sneak attack exposition by Shakespeare in the shape of, in the shape of our boy going, I think I want to die. And um, what's interesting about it though, is that, yeah, the, the suicidal ideation that comes in hot in act one, the thing of, um, you know, yeah, I mean, the gorgeous poetry of I'd rather melt than be here, essentially. And what's interesting about it, though, is that in a sense, the thing that he's wrestling with at the end of act one, which is, I would kill myself because I'm too angry to live, (laughs) but I might be damned by doing that. Maybe I'm not brave enough to do that. The, the wrestling of the question of, do I even want to keep existing? What's interesting is that at the end of act one, when he gets the charge from the ghost about like, when we get catapulted into the play with what feels like action, and then he's like, great, now I have a purpose, here I go. Every other speech thereafter is weirdly unchanged by that. And to some degree is still too, too solid flesh, which is what I'm, I'm not, I'm still actually focusing all of my anger inward rather than out. This is why, can I just like have a sidebar? This isn't about Hamlet being gay. I mean, except maybe it is. It really bugs me when people, I love this play. I do too. Just for the record. And I love Hamlet. And it bugs me when people like, get on him as a character for being like a whiny rich boy like brat because I'm like this is to me so transparently a play about depression and about when you have a really important thing to do but you are so depressed you can't make choices Mm -hmm. and it's wild to me to read this play and be like Hamlet's so entitled like he's depressed (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's he's critically suicidally depressed. He literally can't go a single act without stopping to be like, ah, should I die? I should just kill myself. I know. And the thing about that, because obviously, obviously, I'm we're not equating that in itself with queerness. No. However, <laughs> the 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 question. <laughs> The question I, I I do want to, I circled that I, that idea a lot in the sense that I'm curious about what you said about how, you know, Laertes' anger later is equally unmanly in terms of the kind of, you know, the way that the audience would have seen these men reacting to their, you know, grief. But like, 
this play is full of people who destroy themselves instead of doing what is expected of them, which is to destroy other people. And there is something a little bit, um, it's part of what is wrong with Hamlet in terms of his, there's, it's part of the alienation that you were drawing our attention to of the fact that like, why am I feeling wrong? Why am I acting wrong? The biggest way in which he's feeling wrong, I would argue is the fact that all of his, even after he has the best reason in the world to direct his anger outward, he sort of can't. And it is the sort of culmination of the disrupted succession. Yes. He doesn't inherit his father's throne properly. And he doesn't inherit his father's grudge properly. He can't mm-hmm. revenge the way a son should. That's right. And I think that's, I yes, I think that's, he also like something I thought of that's again, blindingly obvious, but maybe for the purposes of this conversation, super helpful. He also inherits his father's name and, yeah. not, and not properly. You know what I mean? Of like this thing of like, and you know, yeah, he, he, to succeed your father wrongly. I mean, he has the line, the line I'm thinking of is, you know, when he's speaking about, when he's speaking about Claudius, um, being a shithead who's not as good as his dad when he the when he says uh no more like my father than i to hercules that's something that's always in my head of like the you know the comparison of like this is my father what a soldier he was etc and like you know i'm like the opposite of a martial man i don't know there's a few different places in the play where that idea reflects yeah but yes this whole i mean i think it's the dominant sense, I mean, and it continues through the whole play, but sort of the thing that gets really powerfully set up in act one is this sense of Hamlet is not only sort of as an individual person kind of alienated from his culture and looking very specifically, and I think we'll Mm. go into this more later, at Mm. the structures of patriarchal heterosexuality like succession and like marriage looking at them from the outside and saying these are distorted and weird and wrong and I feel I have no place in that yeah and that is a pretty gay place to begin your play it really really is it really really is and I mean a couple of like uh I want to introduce Horatio a little bit before we leave act one and then move forward just because you know you're We gotta, we gotta, because he ends up being so important. And also, I mean, in terms of like, you said something really early on that made me think of it about like the weirdness of being home from school and having no one to relate to. And then all of a sudden, weirdly, you look up and your best friend from college is in your living room. You know, I mean, it's interesting. The, um, The way that he gets introduced and then maintained by the play as sort of like, the assumption that he's the only person that Hamlet can check in with honestly about what's going on is interesting because he disappears for a long time in the middle. Yeah, I wonder if actually maybe we should save him a little bit because I think the okay. question of kind of, I do because I think that's totally right. And I think I was really struck by the moment when it seems he's going to confide in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and then takes a, like a sharp turn and yes. chooses Horatio instead and so maybe when we get to that moment we can kind of mm-hmm. reflect backwards on what totally. the kind of accumulated meaning of Horatio is that would that be great time. yeah for sure um 
but so let's let's move into act two which I think yeah. really on the whole reiterates a lot of these ideas I think that one of the things that um is actually in act one <laughs> is uh <laughs> But it happens again at the beginning of Act Two is we get this thread of the subplot about Ophelia and Polonius. Yep. And in her first scene, it is both Polonius and her brother Laertes being like, beware of men. <laughs> Don't do not trust them. Speaking of that, like yeah. love is dangerous, courtship is dangerous, marriage is dangerous. And then mm -hmm. when we sort of see Ophelia again in act two, and she has just encountered Hamlet, who is now pretending to be mad. And she like narrates this like kind of, I mean, she's terrified. He's yes. like grabbed her and stared at her and like touched her face. And it's super scary. Yeah. And Polonius is like, ah, oh, he's in love. And you're like, I'm sorry. Is that what being in love is like? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so crazy to read it from that angle and think like, you know how love makes you crazy. Uh, you know how you go <laughs> literally violently insane and you're like <laughs> no dude no and again it's no. just like contributing once again to this idea of like yeah if this is what courtship yeah. and marriages in Denmark do we mm. want any part of this we soups don't I know that line that Polonius has where he says something something it leads the will to violent and to desperate undertakings that was the one where I was like does it which is like language Shakespeare uses but at the moment no. I am hard pressed to think of a play that goes in so hard on heterosexuality being bad and yes. doesn't offer a sort of corrective or contrasting example anywhere huge, huge. yes even something like King Lear which in my opinion is about how everything is bad has <laughs> the king of France proposing to Cordelia out right. of love. You know, you mm -hmm. have this one little moment of like, see, sometimes right. it's fine. Right, right. And yeah, it's interesting because yeah, that it worked, it works out okay until it doesn't, because that marriage is how she gets her army. It's, yeah, like all, that it's was, almost it's, fine. It's all good. But yeah, yeah, in Hamlet, it's like there's literally not a single contrasting example of like actually sometimes. No, exactly right. And I mean, in terms of like. I mean, it's so, so critically important, and this will only get gnarlier as we get into Acts 3 and 4, but like, there are only two women in this play, and they are the main character's girlfriend and mother, and like, and so, you know, ex-girlfriend and mother, but the thing is like, the, the, the precarity of their positions and how isolated they, I mean, like, there didn't have to only be two women in the play. I think it's so interesting that it's like, you know, I mean, it's the, the, and the, I mean, we're not there yet, but the language that Hamlet uses to describe, to react to the sexuality of both of those women is so like revolted and poisoned. It's just like, I don't know. The, yeah. The, the rotten thing in Denmark is heterosexual love. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. And so uh, to bring in like a contrast to that, like, yeah. We were just uh, talking about this a moment ago, but it kind of begins in this act is this is when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern show up. And I was yes. really struck by the fact that like, you know, ultimately Hamlet has Rosencrantz and Guildenstern killed and does not give a single F about them. And that. He made love to this employment. Yeah. What a but crazy it, excuse. But at first he's super excited to see them. And I was yeah. so struck by the instantaneous entrance into like a completely different linguistic register than we have existed in 
at this point. Like it's like we are transported into Romeo and Juliet and suddenly yes. it is Romeo and Mercutio just like doing body puns and like, you know, yeah. just having really some really good banter. And it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. by no means are they his enemies from the moment they arrive. And for like a second, it feels like this glimpse into something that we see a lot in the comedies of like, yes. sometimes heterosexuality is scary, but homosociality with your bro friends can be lots yes. of fun. Yes. And you know, what's so interesting is I know we'll, 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 we'll thread it through, but something that's contextually always super interesting to me is the difference between the way Hamlet speaks to Rosengild and to Horatio and the fact that they are not from the same context. I think people lump them in together as like, oh, all of those dudes who are friends with Hamlet from school or whatever. But the context of Rosengild is from your young days brought up together. Yeah, they're and court dudes. They're court dudes. They're nobility dudes. Whereas Horatio is explicitly from college and it's a different vernacular. And explicitly of a lower class than yes. the others. Yes. Yeah. And the way that Hamlet speaks to them is so different than the way that he speaks to Horatio. I mean, it's almost like you're getting this glimpse of like, this is why he wants to go back. Like, this is what he's like normally. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Before the, before the world came crashing down. Yeah. Or before, like, again, not to keep returning to this as metaphor, but like the whatever's rotten in the state of Denmark sort of poisons, poisons this relationship Absolutely. as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then of course, that's when we get the classic Mandalite's not me joke, because we hey. all know Mandalite you, Hamlet. Oh... <laughs> uh... Yeah, I mean, you know what's interesting about that moment I always find is that I think, here's my hot take, I think that, um, it's not that hot, I think the best speech in this play is um, Piece of Work, and it's- This is, oh, what a piece of work is, man, Hamlet yes. reflecting on right. human uh, nature, basically. <laughs> And like his state of mind and the fact that like, I mean, literally the speech is just him saying, I'm so depressed. I, I can't feel anything. And yeah. he says this to Rosengild, who are his, you know, these friends that he has just, and it's in that scene. There's just like, there's, um, you know, this sparky fun reunion. And I always find it super interesting that he said he, he, I always feel like dramatically, just to be a director for a second, the most interesting way to play that scene is for, um, for it to feel like Hamlet is actually taking a real risk by opening up to someone on stage about how he really feels, telling them the truth, and then they don't know how to react, and then they make a joke, and then he, and then he makes a joke instead, and then they're like, these actors are coming, and then he's like, okay, and then very quickly, you know, he never tries to do that again with them, and then very quickly he has better reason not to trust them at all, but like, there is a moment where he does look at other people on stage and it is those childhood friends who are both men and says, you know, like, I actually like am numb inside and, uh, you know, everything is terrible. And then they're both just like, <laughs> what? And then he's like, oh my God, never mind. And I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it was a sort of note that I made to myself thinking in sort of very <laughs> naturalistic terms of like, is this a sign that, Hamlet has changed a lot since he last saw them or just that they yeah. miss they just miss each other in this moment like it's just it's such a change and his yes. dynamic with them is so different from everyone else it's just like it's really striking um and it's really striking that he can't sustain it mm -hmm. which is of course the whole thing he can't 
if he could, if he could put on the show, then the play wouldn't be happening. Right. Right. Yeah, I know. It's interesting because there's so much, I mean, one of the, you're putting your finger on something that characters in the play talk about a lot, but there's a lot of layers to of like, I feel like it's Polonius who later talks about Hamlet's transformation. And of course, like in scene, the people in the play are talking about the fake madness that he's putting on in order to wrong foot everybody. But there's something deeper going on too about Hamlet's transformation, which I think is more visible in scenes like this, where it's like, actually he is different than even we ever knew him to be. Yeah, I was thinking, as soon as you said that, I was thinking about how Ophelia has lines to that effect as well. Of like, yeah, he, everyone looked up to him. Everyone thought he was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as opposed right. to now when everyone's like who's this gay emo kid wearing black hey buddy are you okay You're doing and all right. he's not he's really really not okay no he's um, super not um so maybe having brought up Ophelia we should yeah. move into act three yeah which is when all of uh the sort of demons of heterosexuality really come home to roost <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, yeah the they're coming they're coming home they're roosting the football and the heterosexuality is coming home <laughs> um sports jokes anyway <laughs> because this is the act where we not only have the infamous nunnery scene the worst breakup of all time truly um we also have freud's favorite scene <laughs> Hamlet's confrontation with his mother yes perhaps one of the grossest containing some of the grossest language and I would say the canon it is always a very interesting question to me how sexual and violent a director or actor like you never know quite where those ideas originate but a production Mm -hmm chooses to let Hamlet get with both Ophelia and Gertrude Um, and I have seen many a production where I have found it very difficult to come back from the things that Hamlet does to them physically yes Um, I agree and sort of being asked as a viewer to be like yes he like you know shoved Ophelia to the ground and like thrust his knee between her legs but he's our buddy Hamlet no I know it's tricky it's tricky I mean I can't help but sort of project my own understandings of the text and how I would make that physical because that's my brain I my personal feeling is that um I think the nun I think the nunnery scene does not and should not contain physical violence from Hamlet toward Ophelia I personally don't think that's the most painful version of the scene Mm -hmm. um but I think I'm so much more, I mean, I think there's, it, there's, there's tons of very pertinent to our conversation, you know, there's tons of really, really emotionally manipulative and painful um, linguistic turns in that scene. But the language in the closet scene with Gertrude is so gross and like sexual and granular. It's just like, it is again, like not to keep harping on this, but it's like, there is no nice version of heterosexuality there in isn't. this play at all like but Hamlet also, is just so revolted by yes. women and by yes. sex and I was just thinking about like literally in this act it's like scene Hamlet dumps Ophelia scene Hamlet puts on an entire play about how untrustworthy and horrible women are and you yes. can't listen to anything they say scene Hamlet tells his mother again how gross and old she is and how 
horrible and trustworthy women are. And his solution to every single problem in this act is no yes. one else, men and women shouldn't have sex anymore. No men, yes. no women should have any more sex at all. Ever. I mean, I mean, yes, this is the thing is we're in the meat of the argument now. I mean, the headline of act three is I say there shall be no more marriage. And like, and I mean, like, I mean, hello, just like well, he's also to Gertrude. He's like, here's what you have to do. Stop having sex. Stop having sex with him. But the thing is like, okay, sorry. I'm whipping out act three right now. I have it in front of me. I can't help myself because just the thing is like, <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's very obvious, but it's what I said before. There are no neutral women in this play. The only women are a woman who you personally probably did have sex with and the woman who bore you. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like the, the his skin in the game is, you know, like he doesn't know, there are no women in the world, which is such a critical choice of Shakespeare's, I feel like, that don't have some kind of, relate direct relationship to how disgusted Hamlet is by heterosexuality in the book you know what I mean yeah I mean I think it runs in both directions right which is because like in the sort of revenge tragedy genre which this is kind of riffing on right women tend to play very important roles either as the kind of victims who need to be who need their wrongs righted or you know like Mm -hmm various just kind of I mean just victims in different <laughs> new and exciting in different ways or, to, or just total villains just total yeah, villains yeah. right but it's like there are a lot of women in revenge tragedy but it's also right. like yes he only put in two women but it's like he didn't have to put in any that's true too. it's also but- not like now you know when it's like oh well, we've got some women in the company we better make sure there's a role for them it's like <laughs> if you didn't want to have to deal with the idea of heterosexuality and you're like this is a my hero doesn't think or care about romance that's not what this play is about I don't want to deal with that so there's just going to be no women at all and the question isn't going to come up it's I'm going to raise the question and I'm going to say ew right okay I have so many yes yes I have so many thoughts about this okay one um we skipped over it a little bit but just briefly looking back to the conversation that the ghost and Hamlet actually have at the end of act one. You mean the inciting incident of the play, which we didn't talk about? Listen, well, seeing as you've drawn our attention to the idea of succession a lot, um, part of the explicit background slash task that the ghost has given Hamlet is um, it's the ghost who is like your mother did this essentially he also says like don't hurt or kill her but the ghost said draws hamlet's attention which was already on it but still the ghost explicitly draws hamlet's attention to gertrude's marriage with claudius claudius's desire for gertrude as part of the reason that he is dead and so part of the succession part of the gift from father to son in act one is like this deep suspicion and disgust about the sexual relationship that Hamlet's mother is in. And so by the time we've arrived at act three, that has curdled into such like, I mean, the thing is, I'm going to like stall for a second while I find the, the line. Because well, I'll like, just say it's curdled so much that even the ghost who initially pointed this out has to intervene <laughs> and be like, Hey buddy, uh, why don't you calm down. down? Also though, also something that, um, always strikes me is Hamlet set on his way into the scene at the end of uh on his way into the scene Hamlet says I will I will speak daggers but use none he has to remind himself he's not gonna stab his mother and then he goes and stabs someone anyway 
listen, we're very, we're we sort all, of dagger listen, happy you know, at this point. When you're <laughs> visiting your parents, you have the best of intentions. You're on the airplane and you're like, we're not going to argue this time. We're not going to bring a knife this time. What? Um, uh, what? What? Um, what? Hamlet, put the knife down. But I mean, yeah, the thing is like, I mean, oh God, I'll find, I'll, I'll find it later, but I'll, the, the, the grossness it doesn't have to be this gross. Even if the, the, even if Hamlet was just going to say like, Gertrude, please don't, he's evil and a villain. Like, but the, the text that has like, do not, you know, like the pair of reachy kisses and the, like the way that he describes the, like the seamed sheets. Is that one of them? Yeah. 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 Toast to something to, yeah. Yeah. The rank sweat of an inseamed bed. I think that's the, that's the ghost. Oh yeah. It's the rank sweat of inseamed bed and post to incestuous sheets. Post to incestuous sheets. Yeah. It's so gross. And like everything about it is so gross. You just shouldn't be that obsessed with your mom having sex. I mean, there's a reason it's Freud's favorite scene. Um, I mean, I don't think it's his favorite, but you know, you know what I think. But yeah, I mean, it's just, there is, it is really, really striking that we are not even given, there is no B-plot romance to sort of reassure us that like heterosexuality is salvageable as a concept in this country. Well, you know, so it's so, um, I have a couple of thoughts about that. I mean, yeah, that's, the thing is the, when you twin it with succession and monarchy, you know, all of those structures too, it's like, there's a reason why the, the line stops with Hamlet at the end of the play in a lot of senses, you know what I mean? Is that like, not a successful king, not a successful man, not a successful lover, you know, like somebody else has to step in and take over the country literally at the end of the play, you well, know? And- somebody else has to carry forth his legacy and it's another man. <sighs> okay. Well, I mean, we'll get to Horatio, but I feel like we have to touch, we have to touch the nunnery scene textually yeah. just a tiny bit more before we, before we leave it. Because the thing that you said earlier about how Ophelia is set up in this incredibly explicit way with Polonius and Laertes both saying like the play starting with them saying um, heterosexuality is dangerous don't believe men. And then she steps into the nunnery scene worth reminding listeners, I think, not of her own accord. She's literally set there as a prop by Claudius and and, um, Polonius. Like she's not trying to have this conversation anyway. They shove her into the room and leave. And then what happens textually from Hamlet is that he explicitly confirms everything that her family said to her earlier you know Mm -hmm. I mean I think it's so important that like his literal text where is it where is it is uh I am myself indifferent honest but yet I could accuse me of such things that it were better my mother had not borne me you know etc etc we are errant knaves all believe none of us I mean he literally is like don't believe men we all suck including me well and also the like plot of the scene is like the thing that Laertes warns her is like he is you know he's powerful he might even if he loves you he might not be able to Mm -hmm. stick to that he might have to kind of marry someone else and back away like and that is I mean there's so many I would be interested in your sort of view as a director of like how you would sort of frame this scene emotionally but I think there's a ton Mm. of ways to read sort of Hamlet's motivations for doing this when he decides to drive her away most cruelly and you know whether it's out of betrayal or a desire to protect her or whatever um but the sort of heart of the scene is she's like here's your love tokens you were in love with me and he's just like nope not for me I didn't do it like he just does exactly what Laertes warns her 
that he might do, which is just have to be like, nope, sorry, other things on my mind. I never yep. loved you. Yep. Yep. And I mean, just to be really annoying and granular about it too, it's like there are a couple of passes in the beginning of the scene where she speaks to him in verse and then he responds in prose and then she speaks in verse and he responds in prose. He's not trying to have the same scene that she's having. And then eventually he, he picks it up in verse, but in a mean way, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's there, verse, but mean first, but mean, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, and, and also, I mean, speaking of people, people of course are free to make lots of different choices about this as well, but um, there are a bunch of false exits in that scene. You know, there, are, he, he, he says goodbye and tries to leave a couple of different times. And I think that's not, you know, naturally opportunities where the playwright is allowing you to re-enter in a slightly different key, because if you say farewell and then you don't leave the room, why, why not? You know what I mean? And so like the thing of, you know, the one that I'm thinking of particularly is one of the false exits is after, you know, to a nunnery go quickly to farewell. And then one of the things he careens back in to say is the famous kind of makeup speech that is so weird where he's, it's back to this question of like, women are so good at lying. Like, you know, you like make yourselves look different than you are. You like, you know, like act all cute, but like, you know, I mean, he points to the surfaceness of things yet again, of like, you're so good at pretending to feel differently than you do. I mean, and this is the question of, I think, whether there is a turning point in the scene in terms of him realizing or beginning to suspect that Ophelia is spying on him, essentially. Because (laughs) a lot of productions, I've seen so many productions that do like a surveillance thing and have him sort of find a wire on her body. Or in the Kenneth Branagh film, there's the thing with the two-way mirrors where he sort of realizes... Right. That they're in this like hall of mirrors and the mirrors have these little rooms behind them. And he kind of right. yeah realizes that yeah. Polonius and Claudius are kind of hiding right behind there. one of these mirrors. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I mean, as you say, there's this shift in his language from prose to verse. Yes. And I think that there's a question of like, does the fact that he suddenly switches to harping on themes that we've heard him Mm-hmm. kind of raised before which suggests it's not really part of his kind of performance of madness because it's one of the things that genuinely pisses him off is that like yes. he begins the scene perhaps with one intention and then realizes I guess something I'm thinking about is like this thing we keep talking about about the sort of the disrupted successions the disrupted heterosexuality and part of that is mm-hmm. like your dad is not who your dad should be and your mom is sleeping with a person who shouldn't be your dad and you were supposed to be king, but somehow Claudius was there instead. And the similar sense of like, I'm supposed to be having a scene with my girlfriend, Ophelia, Mm -hmm. and somehow actually I'm having a scene with her dad. Like, (laughs) yes, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yes, exactly right. It's that in a world where your mom is not really your mom because your dad is not your dad, he's your uncle, your girlfriend can't be your girlfriend, you know? And also you can't be yourself. I mean, I feel like there's a sort of, there's a literal bluntness to, uh, you know, no, not I, I never gave you what. Of just like, no, it wasn't, it wasn't me. That was a different life when people were who they're supposed to be, you know? Yeah. And an almost like, no pun intended, like prophylactic sense of like, everything is so incestuous and let's have no more marriages. We're canceling marriages until we can figure out what's going on. It's literally that though. It's literally that because when he careens back in, yeah. I mean, the line, the line is go to on the moron. It hath made me mad. I say we will have no more marriages. And he's back in prose by that point. He's ranting and raving. And, you know, I mean, like 
that it literally is let's cancel marriage until we figure out what the hell is going on yeah I mean and then it becomes you know everyone will live except for the one couple I'm going to kill hint hint whoever's listening Um, yes yes but it yeah it's just it feels so illustrative of again the rot in Denmark is poisoning everything Mm -hmm. Right, right. And yeah, and I, yeah, I think the very concept of marriage has been polluted by what Claudius and Gertrude have done in Hamlet's eyes. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Which, of course, precludes any possibility that ever could have existed that we critically never really see in bloom between Hamlet and Ophelia. Yes, which, if we could let that bring us into Act Four, there's a line that always makes me laugh. Actually, this (laughs) might even be in Act Five, but whatever. Whatever. Is when Gertrude at Ophelia's grave, so it is act five, is like, I had hoped you might be my Hamlet's wife. And you're like, (laughs) what? Did you? (laughs) I'm sorry. We had no, it's just like, again, speaking of like, you could have hinted at that. You could have had anyone approach the idea of this marriage with positivity at any point up before now. Like it could have been expressed, like that would have been a perfect way had Shakespeare wanted anyone to defend the concept of heterosexuality. Yeah. But yeah, he doesn't have her do it. So significant. Yeah. 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 I mean, Ophelia. Yeah. Again. I mean, I think that we can sort of glance through Act Four relatively quickly because I think it's mm-hmm. the return of two ideas that we've talked about. I mean, again, yes. heterosexuality is bad and literally drives Ophelia to suicide. Yep. Um, and then we also have Hamlet, well, in some versions of the text, we have Hamlet sort of encountering Fortinbras's army and yeah. having yet another version of the, why don't I feel things the way other people do? Maybe I should just kill myself or maybe I should kill everyone else um, <laughs> speech. Why can't I just be like other men and be good at wrestling together armies and invading? And murder. Fortinbras seems so good at murder. He is good at murder. So something I will say that I think Act 4 introduces is we do actually get a vision of a positive male-female relationship, and it's a brother and a sister. Yep. Yep. Right. And that sort of feels like... Safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's safe. That's the only way that Mm -hmm. men and women can relate is when they're safely related in, like... Yeah. Not by marriage, you know, not, not <laughs> like in weird, fungible ways, just like, yeah, there's no sex dad. in the room at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 No sex. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. It's so sad act four. And I mean, like, yeah, it's the consequences sort of really, really beginning to fly home to roost. And like, I don't know. I mean, this is, well, no, I won't even, I was, flying off in a direction that's perhaps not germane to the is it gay or not question but something that I do often something I find interesting which I think you can lose if you cut Fortinbras is this symmetry of the one two three of all of these wronged sons Mm -hmm. in the play of the fact that like Fortinbras even though we don't know that much about him what we know is that he's a son carrying out his father's essentially dying wishes like taking revenge on behalf of his father who is now dead and then of course in act four Laertes really roars into view trying to do the same thing 
now that Hamlet has killed his father, that happens. And, you know, and then Hamlet is still wrestling with the same question that he's been wrestling with since act one, when we first met him. And he's not doing what these other, these two other young men are doing on behalf of their fathers. He can't do it himself, you know? Yeah. Speaking of Hamlet killing Polonius, I think that the other kind of thing that that reflects on maybe in terms that we've been talking about up to this point is in Ophelia's sort of mad scene where she comes in and sings some weird songs and strews flowers everywhere. She's sort of pinging between these body songs that are one assumes about Hamlet. It's hard to interpret it any other way, but also then like dialogue that's about mourning her dad. And there's something in, again, we have this weird blend of like, who's your dad and who's your boyfriend and like is it incest and what's going on here it's like the idea right much like for hamlet who's like father uncle everything is all like sort of jumbled up and shaken around it's like when ophelia goes mad the same thing kind of happens for her and sort of brother king Mm -hmm. father brother Mm -hmm. boyfriend boyfriend all get sorry the lover not brother but yeah like (laughs) it all sort of just gets put in a box and shaken around and once again it's just like it's all this indistinguishable sources of sadness and violence yes yes I think that's great I think that's brilliant it's just that like the entire I mean it's not just that there will be no more marriage it's like the entire there will be no more family we just don't know how to do it you know it's like the family is just utterly destroyed there will be and it culminating in what happens at the end of the play, if we can, yeah. I think maybe move into act five is yeah, like, yeah. there will be no more succession and there will be no more Denmark. Right. 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 Because in the end, Ham- everyone dies, including Hamlet and Fortinbras of who is <laughs> from Norway. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, I'm the only one left alive. So. I guess I'll take this country. Well, I'm like, I'll he'll be having he, that. <laughs> he walks in expecting to fight him and everyone's already dead and Horatio's just like cradling Hamlet's head and it's like sup and Fortinbras is like I guess this is mine yeah so let's talk about Horatio and I think we'll probably have to like rewind a little bit but I think there's something really interesting in the kind of transformation that takes place around act three Mm. but it's like there's something in like Horatio and some guards who disappear and never matter again, see the ghost. And so from the beginning, the only person who, with whom Hamlet can kind of be fully honest because there's only one other person who kind of understands the full context of what is going on is Horatio. Mm-hmm. And I was just really struck by the time we get to act four and five by this sense that like Hamlet's social world has shrunk down and it is only Horatio and like no one else will like speak to him I mean Mm -hmm. obviously he like gets exiled but then he comes back and it's like he storms off and Horatio follows him and then from that point it's just a lot of like he just can't even talk to anybody else no no I mean yeah it's just a winnowing down of of you know his he breaks up with Rose and Guild and then as you said sends them to their deaths breaks up with Ophelia and then she dies in his absence you know sort of breaks up with his mother and then by the time he's exiled writes Horatio and only Horatio the letter telling him what happened and that he's you know I mean yeah it's it's and then has like long philosophical speeches with Horatio before he goes to the duel that will you know I mean something that I 
so yeah, the mystery of who, who Horatio even is and what he's doing here is really, really interesting. Something that looking at it through this context made me think of all the way back in act one is the fact that like, I mean, I know you have thoughts about this too, but the fact that the guards know who Horatio is, we're expecting him. He arrives to see the thing that they're trying to show him. And the fact that it is Horatio, not of Denmark, like not of, of Elsinore, but of Hamlet's life that acts as the hinge that brings Hamlet together with the ghost, which is what makes the play happen. It's mm -hmm. Horatio who sees the thing, it doesn't speak. And Horatio who says this, whatever dumb to us will speak to him. He intuitively knows that the ghost needs to speak to Hamlet, gets Hamlet and brings Hamlet together with the ghost. And from there, the play occurs. And it's Horatio that makes that happen. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, and then it's just like, there's something in, I think that there is a complicated tangle of things that we will inevitably revisit. Yes. In that sometimes the really queer feeling relationships in a given play, I'm thinking of Twelfth Night, are also like heavily shaded with class inequality. Yes, like, yes. It, there's just something really interesting in that it's sort of like, it is, is Horatio's language that of love or of service? And if those are different, like what, I, it, there's just something really sort of interesting and sad as well in the fact that like the one person Hamlet can ultimately kind of rely on is yeah. not his equal. I know. I mean, he has that line that really stuck out to me to Horatio in Act 3, where he explicitly says that. He says to him, do not think I flatter, for what advancement may I hope from thee that no revenue hast but thy good spirits? Yeah. I mean, that's just explicitly that idea, you know? But it's like, in a weird way, too, it's the inverse of like, I don't know, Horatio is the only person Hamlet can trust because Horatio himself has nothing to gain too yeah. by being here you know I don't know it's a really his outsiderness is so important yeah yeah but then again it's also like as you say he's not an outsider because he's the one who brings Hamlet into the plot essentially and, and then also right no, he is as I alluded to a minute ago he is functionally Hamlet's heir yes yeah and and he also something I always forget and then remember and I'm like that's weird he also stays when Hamlet leaves and continues to function exactly the same even without Hamlet there like Gertrude uses <laughs> think, him yeah, the way like she would use Hamlet level, you know I think <laughs> trying to understand Horatio's identity in relation to the court of Denmark is like an exercise in futility because it's sense. mad he's yeah. functional I mean but that's what's interesting is that he is Hamlet's servant he is there to serve yeah. whatever role either Hamlet or the kind of narrative of play mm -hmm. Hamlet needs right. him to. Yeah. And in the end, what is needed of him is to try to kill himself in order to be with Hamlet, get rejected, mm -hmm. and then be God, asked yeah. to sort of be the surrogate successor, like be the mm -hmm. stand-in for, I couldn't continue mm -hmm. my family's kind of dynasty. So mm -hmm. instead, I need you to continue me tell everyone what happened yeah. yeah 
And yeah. I mean, and on route, we have a lot of very loving language. Mm-hmm. Like, let's not downplay it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting because I think you're absolutely right that the 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 status is present forever. But what's weird about it is that we're at Elsinore, we're not at Wittenberg. So you get the ghost sometimes of what their relationship is probably like when Hamlet isn't a prince, but just a student. Because the Mm. thing is, you get, you know, he calls him fellow student a bunch of different times. And the thing of like, well, his in their first scene together, you know, do not mock me fellow student. I think it was to see my mother's wedding. And it's like the thing of, as the play goes on and Hamlet becomes more and more Prince of Denmark, struggling and flailing and less the kid that we don't know away at school at Wittenberg it falls away and Horatio becomes more of a servant I feel like but it is interesting that sometimes you get wisps of like there's an assumption of shared context and shared knowledge that feels like pulls them closer together yeah and I think that you get that really strongly in the sort of series of philosophical debates in act five when like they really do seem to be speaking on equal terms and that is when you get the sort of like Mm. he's like Horatio says, I mean, and again, I think as a director and actor, you can imagine a lot of ways to say this, but he says, so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern go to it after he's been told they're dead. And I think Hamlet's defensive reaction to that suggests it is judgment. Yeah, well, and and Horatio even responds judgmentally when when Hamlet is like, nay, man, they did make love to this employment, I think. And then Horatio is like, says something like, um, you know, like, that's not a good, that's a bad king thing to do. Like he, he, he articulates judgment about that being a bad call, which is super interesting. Yeah. And he sort of gets a little more like, are you sure you can beat him? Like he's more assertive in those final moments. Yeah. Oh yeah. He, he says, you'll been. lose. You'll too. lose. You'll yeah. lose. Yeah. I read like a really long thing trying to work out what the odds actually are because it's like <laughs> really confusingly laid out like what the bet is. And of course it's like different in the different texts and literally right. like the note that I was reading was like, ultimately it doesn't matter <laughs> because yeah. we all know it's not going to come to that. Yeah, we do. Um, but yeah, I think that there's, there is, I mean, we said this at the beginning and I think you're touching on it again now that there is something in Horatio as, there's something in Horatio as the symbol of the promise of what Hamlet could have been and what he was before he had to come home and Mm -hmm. sort of wallow in the rot of Denmark and deal with all this stuff. And I think that it goes along with the fact that like, we have these two divergent memorials to Hamlet in the last yep. moments of the play. Like it really struck me this really. time how inappropriate it feels for Fortinbras to sort of co- co-opt Hamlet as a soldier and say, yeah. we'll give him essentially like a soldier's funeral. And that's mm-hmm. how I can demonstrate my respect for him. Mm-hmm. And just sort of setting that against knowing that like Horatio also not a, a also a scholar not a soldier mm-hmm. is sort of sitting right there knowing the true how wrong that is yeah yes yeah well it's interesting too because <laughs> this is more I almost laugh a little bit too because yeah I agree totally that go bid the soldiers shoot and stuff at the very end is like completely not what Hamlet was not what he deserves like it's just a complete misunderstanding I mean Fortin Browse even says in his moment of like oh I thought I was gonna fight somebody but everyone's dead he, 
when he has the line, uh, bear Hamlet like a soldier to the stage, for he was likely, had he been put on, to have proved most royally. That thing of like, had I had to fight him, I'm sure he would have been princely about it. And it's funny because it's sort of like, probably not, bro. Like, you probably would have won real fast. You yeah, know, like, I mean, maybe, but maybe, maybe, not. but probably not, you know? And like, yeah. But there's something in that too of like the narrowness of. Hamlet's options yes for being seen as a good and successful person yeah um and sort of the way that like that is what he has been kind of chafing against yes Yes. all along is like from the first scene everyone's like this is the way you need to behave and this is what's normal and he's just like is it well yes and you know I think I've I've harped less on the way that he deviates from what it seems like traditional manliness is you know because of what you said in the beginning but I think like the critical line that you get in in I think act one is you know I as a director would probably hang a lot on you know the moment of oh cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right because I think I think that you can hang inside of that Hamlet's understanding of his unfitness for the task that's being laid out for him and that sort of underscores so much of what's happening of just like I don't know how to do this the way that people are asking me to yeah I mean I think that there's something in the question of what he sees himself as being asked to do because on set like on a really like meta theatrical level what he's being asked to do is become the hero of a revenge tragedy which means he will die yes and which means he will not be a king and it means he will not be a father and it means Mm -hmm. that he has to sort of eschew any path of normal again like normal succession and marriage and love Mm. and be something different and it is yeah like I think there's something in that though that also feels queer Mm -hmm. because it's like okay (laughs) you know it's like what we're asking you to do is commit to your life doesn't get to be a comedy you don't get to get married and your life doesn't get to be a history you're not going to have an heir like you you, we're asking you to you are agreeing to live in a different way than everyone is expecting you to and have a different arc and ending to your story than you are expected to have absolutely that's brilliant I mean I think Meta theatrically, yeah. And the the thing is like, okay, well, it's gay because you had to break, like, of course you have to break up with your girlfriend because the play Hamlet demands that you do. You know what I mean? It's like, there is something really interesting in the kind of coil of that, of like, okay, well, if you know you're going to die, which you do, and you know you're going to, you know, of like it, the closing off of doors and isolation to like, yeah, there is no, if there is no future at all. Yeah, it's super mm-hmm. interesting. Then like, who you're left with is Horatio. Exactly, exactly. Who will be the sort of confidant and wife and son and lover that you have otherwise had to push away. Well, and if what you leave behind, if your legacy, if what you leave behind is not a dynasty or a child, but a story, then of course the romantic feeling thing is the person that you leave that with this the 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 co-parent of the story yes and I will say that 
very, 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 very often in Shakespeare. That is a role that is explicitly your wife. Right. Right. And I mean, I feel like we would be remiss to not, you know, to not touch the the key of the language when during that death is so, I mean, you referenced it earlier, but just for, you know, the listener, the moment when Hamlet is straight up dying, we're mid poison in the very last moments, Horatio's line, uh, I am more an antique Roman than a Dane, you know, references like, you know, the desire to like, I would rather, um, I'd rather kill myself and follow you if I can, than stay here without you, you know? And, um, Hamlet literally while dying wrestles the cup away from him to get him to not do it you know and then you get the thing of draw that you know in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story and I mean like we all have heard it before but like the the now cracks the noble heart good night sweet prince and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest is like an intensely I mean, it's more emotional about Hamlet than anyone has been since Ophelia was when she realized that he, that, you know, was maybe stone cold out of his mind. And, you yeah. Know. And also there's such Ophelia's kind of lament for his sanity never hits the same way because, you know, she doesn't under, she doesn't have the full picture. You know, that sort of the person she's mourning is not quite who he is anymore. anymore. Whereas we know Horatio knows everything and can mourn Hamlet for who he really is and became. Yes. Yes. And then that's why it's also so sad that when Fortinbras enters and, and completely misunderstands Hamlet's character, Horatio doesn't get any text to answer back, you know, doesn't get to correct him. And also what would he say? And it's interesting too, to have a character on stage at the end of a tragedy, be charged with telling someone's story and then the play is over. It's like the play we've watched isn't Horatio telling the story, but we know that he will. Do you know what I'm saying? It's interesting. Yeah, but I mean, I think that it's like the thing, I think it's the thing that Shakespeare likes to do in tragedies with notable exceptions that I just like called King Lear, um, where you do have the (laughs) days there's usually the seed of hope in this case that we will have political stability in the form of Fortinbras and perhaps that there will be a kind of justice for Hamlet Mm. in that in the way that he's remembered yeah in that when people hear what happened they will hear everything that happened not a -hmm. distortion and not a misunderstanding of Mm -hmm. the motives that admittedly he did not share right Right. Yeah, but I think that also <laughs> he's gay. <laughs> um, you know, but it's just it is this just yeah this swirl of sort of themes of that culminating yeah. in this like ultimate like rejection of everything about the succession about heterosexuality. Just none of those none of those values get successfully upheld by anyone in this play. No, and I mean, if you're left on stage at the very end, surrounded by the corpses of your family who disappointed you and then who you killed, um, and then you're being like, you know, held in your final moments by your bro from school, who's the only person who understands you, that feels pretty gay to me. (laughs) It does to me as well. 
So I think something that we uh, would like to do at the end of each of our episodes is give you a little teaser for the week to come, which is to say, decide what the week to come <laughs> will be um, live on air oh with you. Um, so I have uh, maybe a slightly out of left field pitch for a play that I think connects thematically with this one in an interesting way. Um, and I wonder how you'd feel about next week if we do uh, much ado about nothing. Because I think it is a play that begins with a group of men who are about as scared of marriage and heterosexuality as Hamlet is, but instead learn perhaps a different lesson. To follow this up, let's go comedy. That feels right to me. Great. Well, so we will see you in two weeks' time to talk about much ado about nothing. Until then, I'm Haley. And I'm Emma. You can find us on Twitter at this sha- this shakes s h a x is gay or on Instagram. Yes, on Instagram at this Shakespeare is gay. And we hope that you will download, subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you enjoyed, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review and a rating. We'll yes. see you soon. Goodbye.